Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the continuation of our Winter's Mind. Um, for those of you who have not been with us before, our Winter's Mind is all about food. So in the morning, we have classes about the sixth pack of Masachet Brachot, which talks about blessings that you make over food that you're enjoying as you're consuming it and other kinds of blessings that you would make. Um, and in the afternoons, we have classes on Jewish thought and halakha relating to food. And in the evenings, we've been exploring. Last week, we had people who actually make food from the source. So we had a Torah teacher who's also a beekeeper and a Torah teacher who also raises heritage poultry. And uh, what Drisha's very own Michael Fraud spoke about his time um, growing plants and connected that into uh, as a produce farmer and, and connected that into Torah as well. Uh, we also had a showcase. So that was last week. And this week we've taken a turn from there to how food gets to the people who need it the most or how food doesn't get to the people who need it the most and how um, Judaism thinks about food distribution um, and how there is plenty of food to go around this country, but it doesn't actually get around. So last night we had representatives from Mazon talking about hunger and their work on a on a kind of policy level, um, which which um, which is very important as they mentioned because they estimate that this year there will be an eight billion meal shortfall um, beyond what some of the charities that we'll hear from tonight and there are many, many partner organizations around the globe um, are able to provide. And so that's where the government comes in. But in addition to the government, we also have a private sector and the Jewish community's private sector as it relates to food is really doing amazing, admirable work, but also doing it in quite different ways. So tonight we have the opportunity to hear from representatives from three different organizations. We're gonna be in conversation with each other um, about their um, practices in food distribution. So let me just introduce our panelists. Um, we have Dr. Victoria Haas. She's the clinical director at the ARC in Chicago, where she oversees all client services. And in this role, which she's been in for the past 12 years, her oversight includes social services in Chicago and also in the suburbs, um, a, a transitional housing program, an intensive day program, graduate student training program in psychology and social work. Dr. Haas earned her PhD in clinical psychology from Northwestern University, completed her psychology residency at the University of Illinois Student Counseling Center, and um, she received her master's from University of Chicago's School of Social Service Administration, her bachelor's from University of Wisconsin in Madison. Before she joined the ARC, she served as the director of psychological services for college living experience, program that supported college students with learning disabilities and behavioral issues to be academically and socially successful in college. Earlier in her career, Dr. Haas was a social worker at the Lieberman Bariatric Health Center and served as a consultant for the Council for Jewish Elderly, CJE Senior Life, and also maintained a private practice. She and her husband live in Wilmette, they're the parents of two married sons, and they just had their first grandchild. Uh, Jessica Chi is the managing director of food programs at Met Council in New York. She's responsible for the Kosher Food Network, the largest free kosher food distribution system in the world, and for bringing greater visibility to food insecurity within the Jewish community. Prior to joining Met Council, Jessica worked for UJ Federation of New York in roles of increasing responsibility, culminating as chief of staff responsible for strategic initiatives, including UJ's year-long centennial celebration. Jessica is passionate about helping the vulnerable, and prior to her move to New York, she worked for nonprofits in Poland and Zambia. She grew up in San Antonio, Texas, holds a BA in psychology from the University of Texas and an MPA from NYU. Uh, Alexander Rappaport is also here with us. 
from Masvia. Um, Masvia is a soup kitchen in Queens and Borough Park and other places, um, but they do it in a very unique way. It's not like any other soup kitchen you've ever seen. Um, and um, we're so grateful to have you joining us here as well tonight. So we're gonna have something of like a moderated conversation moderated by me. I'm Ravanit Layasada. I'm Drusha's Associate Director of Education. Um, and as I mentioned um, at the uh, on the Monday night um, when I was teaching, um, I come to this with four years of experience um, as a hunger and homelessness activist in the region when I was an undergraduate before I kind of shifted over to learning Torah full time, teaching Torah full time. Um, but there we were also involved in food redistribution um, and activities like that. So this is a program, This is tonight's program is very near and dear to my heart with hopefully addressing lots of questions that have been on my mind for a very long time. So with that, uh, we will begin. Um, so I wanted to um, first start out with giving people just a few minutes to introduce their organization's approach to um, food distribution in particular. So maybe we'll start with Dr. Haas, if that's okay. Hi, the, the ARC is a, a social service agency in Chicago's West Rogers Park community, which is the sort of center of Orthodox life in, in Chicago, um, as well as in Northbrook, Illinois, which is a Northwest suburb. Um, we have a satellite office there, um, and there are food pantries at each of those offices. Um, we have about a seven and a half million dollar budget. Um, we're an agency that has a food pantry, yes, but also um, intensive case management, um, a medical clinic, a dental clinic, a pharmacy, an intensive day program, which is like a partial hospitalization program for chronically mentally ill. We have a um, homeless shelter for uh, 22 individuals um, and um, a training program in psychology and social work as well. Um, and our food pantry, you know, is, is very popular and usually what the ARC is known for, but we do have wraparound services. So we're able to sort of leverage, and I'll talk about that later, um, the, the food pantry for our clients. Um, for our food pantry, we um, spend about $38,000 a month on food. Um, that, and additionally, um, almost $13,000 a month on produce vouchers. We don't have a large enough food pantry, so there are um, markets, there's a produce market nearby, and we give vouchers for people to do to go and buy fresh produce. And then we also, um, since COVID began in March, are also giving uh, dual gift cards um, based on family size for a family of one to three, it's a $25 gift card. And that's to find hard to find items, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Our food pantry also has um, uh, hygiene products, toiletries and paper products, which as you know, SNAP does not cover. So we have those um, as well. Um, and um, we also um, have about 2,500 uh, clients a month using our food pantries. So I know that pales with Met Council, where your numbers are so huge. But, you know, Chicago is a much smaller Jewish community, which brings up other issues, um, which we'll talk about later as well. Um, well, Jessica, since we, we, we just mentioned Met Council, let's hop over to you. 
Sure, thank you. Good evening, everyone. And it's really, really nice to see you all and be with be with you and, and my colleagues as well. Um, so Met Council is a health and human service organization that was founded over 40 years ago to respond um, really to the unique needs of the Jewish community, as I'm sure many of you have heard people say, oh, there are poor Jews. We don't we don't know of these people. We don't believe of, of this need. Um, and so Met Council was really founded to bring a voice um, for those people and for the community and for particularly our government funders to really be prepared to divert resources or to supply resources to those communities. Met Council um, does many things, including provides affordable housing, uh, we have a family violence program. We help Holocaust survivors um, go into people's homes and help with repairs, all things that people who are struggling uh, to make ends meet uh, might need assistance with. Um, uh, as well as, of course, SNAP and benefits access. Our largest program, though, is our emergency food program, which in effect uh, operates as a food bank. So for those who are in New York, but really every city has um, a, a Feeding America site. New York City actually has two food bank for New York City and City Harvest. And Met Council, in effect, operates as a kosher food bank, so a third food bank for New York City. Uh, we currently have two warehouses. We bring in food in bulk. We then um, receive both donated food as well as purchased food um, and then distribute that to a network of pantries across New York City. Um, Typically, if this weren't a COVID year, we would say we typically support 40 pantries a month. Those with exclusively kosher food, though all of the pantries are open for anybody who needs. So all New Yorkers are encouraged to come and welcome, though they are in predominantly kosher requiring neighborhoods. Um, but since the pandemic, and we'll talk more about this, but we have you know really dramatically scaled our operation and frankly, uh, over the last nine months have served over 350 different nonprofits throughout the city, uh, must be, uh, and others included. So we're very, uh, proud of our ability to respond in this way. We also run a number of our own pantries and are using innovative services to reach more people, but we can talk more about that later. All right. Over here. Vera. Hello. Hello. <laughs> okay. Uh, my, my name is Alexander Rappaport. I'm the director of the Masbia Soup Kitchen Network. Masbia currently has three locations, two of them in Brooklyn, one in Queens. Our basic idea was just a sharing food idea where people would do that uh, maybe 10, 30, maybe 30, 40 years ago, you would invite a person to your home, to your Shabbos meal, to your dinner, um, things like that became less and less of like a, re a realistic option. And a bunch of friends came together and said, we're going to make a place where you can make sure that no one in the neighborhood goes to sleep hungry and there's going to be a place for dinner every night. And that slowly grew into two things where we do both dinner every day and then pantry every day where we would give groceries. Um, slowly went from one like grassroots uh, um, neighborhood thing to a little bit of a network where there's a few such locations, donors came forward and said, why not replicate it in our neighborhood and in our neighborhood? And then um, slowly we added hours. You can imagine like the first day we only had eight people show up and then there were hundreds of people every day in all the locations. And we slowly turned into being um, a food resource in many ways where 
there's two main ideas where there's ready to eat food for people who are kind of in a situation where they cannot cook for themselves, like more homeless or seniors and that sort of a situation. And then there is for that mother in need to bring home to her family, that type of a thing where they come and get groceries for the family for a week and cook, take that food and not eat it in our place, but take it home and cook at home with it. Um, what happened is that we were able to scale up during COVID and we went from doing, let's say, two to three tractor trailers of food a week to about 15 tractor trailer loads of food a week between the three locations. And at the point we are now open five days, 24 hours straight every week. So kind of like the, our, we scaled like between 500 and 700% kind of, of what we do just in those, uh, um, in those nine months since COVID. Thank you all. Um, I wanted to talk about, uh, there's different philosophies of food distribution. On, on Monday night, one of the things that we talked about was dignity as um, maybe like a guiding principle in some of that halakhu around scarcity. Um, and I'm wondering, what are the values that your organization brings to your food distribution? Are there programs that you've realized, we tried this thing and it actually wasn't according to our values, so we shifted course, or we tried an experiment and we realized it didn't, it didn't match up with our vision for how food distribution um, should kind of optimally be accomplished. And so that was kind of part one. And then part two is, do you feel like those guiding values are particularly Jewish or do you feel like we're just best in field and best in field is uh, lives out Jewish values as well? Meaning, so are there differences between what you do and other people do that could be accounted for by um, the particularly Jewish nature of, of what you do? Um, and maybe we'll... Um, maybe we'll we'll start with um, that count long as well. Sure. So um, one of the things that I think is both uh, really innovative, but but really is embedded in um, in our values is is the issue of dignity. And um, and I think you know you mentioned it, and I'm sure the other other groups will will mention it as well. Um, and so there are a number of ways historically the emergency food system has really thought about choice as a way of ensuring dignity that no one should have to get a bag uh, of food, of, you know, items for their home for themselves that don't speak to their dietary or even just preferred tastes. And so obviously we have that issue frequently around around kashrut and what's kosher to me may not be kosher to you and making sure that our food is acceptable to everyone. Um, and we have worked really hard over the last number of years to make sure that that's possible. Um, New York City obviously has a lot of diversity in terms of um, uh, kosher certifications and standards. Um, and and but but even beyond kosher's that like, you know, we always say like there are people who always got a bag of rice and like they couldn't eat rice and there are people or gluten products or, you know, things that just like were, were challenging for them because they were going home with something that was intended to have them feel good and have them be able to feed themselves and their families only to open it and find out that it didn't actually accomplish that. And so choice, I think is across the board it, everywhere in the country is the preferred, um, 
approach, obviously, or not obviously, but COVID did for a while actually make that very challenging because you prefer a shopping experience and then that meant exposure and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the other ways that we have thought a lot about dignity is about access and that if a pantry is open um, from, you know, nine to 11 or one to three or even six to 8 p.m. at night, if you work during that time or you have childcare at that time, that's not suitable for you. And so um, Met Council has been um, hard at work at a digital system. Um, it's essentially a fresh direct for pantries, which allow people to place their order online. So our inventory at participating pantries is all available online and they can make and ultimately shop and make the, the choices that are right for them and for themselves and their families. Um, you know, this is um, a, a great, uh, you know, offering that we hope eventually we're still, we, we've been using it for a number of years, but it continues to evolve. And we currently have eight participating pantries using the system. And our hope is that we will continue to improve this and make it increasingly available. Um, New York City also has a plentiful system, which is about appointments. I know Maspia uses that, which really also hopefully guarantees that people don't have to wait online, um, just, as, um, just as our experience allows as well. Um, in terms of the question, like, is that unique to the Jewish community? I think, uh, I don't, I mean, in effect, it is. There are very few other pantries um, that are using this. There is a non-Jewish pantry that uses it in New York City um, called New York Common Pantry. Um, I think what makes, what is sort of the Jewish piece of this is that UJA Federation of New York, um, you know, a, a, a broad, uh, an organization that represents ideally the broad nature of, of Jewish life in New York City, really saw this as a need and rallied their, the, their donors and the community around this. And so really emphasizing the role of dignity um, and, and holding that up as a value of, of a Jewish value and caring for the poor has really stepped up to fund this. So the product itself isn't, but I think the motivation behind it and certainly the support behind it is uh, in my experience, something that as a Jewish community, we should be incredibly proud of um, and reflects our commitment and values. That's amazing. Thank you so much for telling us about that. Mary um, Rappaport, you spoke before about the kind of values that motivated you to found Muspia. Um, are there are those same values or, or different ones kind of at work in how Muspia even functions on, on a day-to-day? -day? Um, and, and those same questions of... of you know, how, how and the, in what ways are those values particularly Jewish and um, and things like that? Okay, so for for the sake of this having a, like a Zman feel and a Shear feel, so let me let me give it like let me let's throw some stuff out there. Um, so in Shulchan Aruch in Tzedakah and then Hilchas Tzedakah, there is um, a concept of Kol Chayla Vashem. If you do charity, you should give from the best. It's a very complicated um, thing to do, although the Shekhanar says to give the poor from the best. So you should give steaks and, and, and wines to the poor, but then how do you leverage and serve more versus giving, so giving a few people something very special? And that's something we, we struggle with. So I remember um, sending out fundraising emails with a lavish Pura meal or a very beautiful Shabbos meal and asking for sponsorships that are three or four times the weekday meal. And 
having people struggle with it. What does that mean? So are you going to give a hungry person a meal on Purim that's going to have salmon fish and and some beef and some halibutz and some kreplach and some whatever on the expense of a weekday meal that you're struggling to for to fulfill. So what is the Torah approach? I'm still struggling with it. It's something that is always a struggle. And guess what? The problem even more is as a grassroots charity, there's always more appetite for donors to sponsor that fancy one day a year meal than the hot soup for a cold Tuesday in February, right? So it's it's also like in a, so that's a lot of what we struggle. I would also say um, that, generally speaking, let's try. Let's try to go all out with this. So we know tikkun olam, right? So let's take the opposite theory and say that the whole concept of tikkun olam is like a very snobby "I will fix you" theory. Like I, I have the idea of how you and Africa should run your town, and I'm going to come with all the money that I got in America and fix your place. Um, so, so let's say, uh, um, let's take that problem with the tikkun olam and think of. Is food a tool? Is food a anchor? Should we use food food as a way to get people to do something else for you, or should feed or should food be unconditional? Should it be like so? The the approach we have is we serve food only. You need any other help? You are you need help for your drug abuse, for your alcoholism, for your homelessness. There is a flyer for you at the table in the corner. We will treat you with dignity, unconditional. We have no social engineering or, or fixing. We have like almost like a unconditional sharing, like like an unconditional love. It's unconditional sharing. There are people who have and want to share with a neighbor that doesn't have no agenda with them, no um, nothing. And and I'll say something. And when you come to that level of purity, I'll use one story that happened. So we had a mashgiach that worked for us. He was for Pesach, for Passover. He was in Arizona. He sent me a WhatsApp like, Late didn't work for us anymore. He says, I have to share with you this story that just happened to me. I'm in a cab here in Arizona, going back from where I spent Pesach, going back to, to um, going to the airport. And I you know, just mess with him, your Scottish moves, and you know, we brag about life and stuff. And the guy says, You know, you're from Brooklyn. Um, I, um, I used to live in Brooklyn, I was a crackhead in Brooklyn, and I whatever, but then. One place turned my life around. Now I have a family here and I'm in Arizona. She said, what do you mean? Well, what happened to you in Brooklyn? She says, there's this place on Coney Island Avenue that I used to walk in. They wanted nothing for me. They gave me just dignity. They gave me a meal, a place to eat. They didn't want me to change my life. They, they just saw me as what I am. I deserve that half hour of being served by a waiter slash volunteer, but kind of being served after multiple times visiting there, they wanted nothing. If they just treated me like a human being, it snapped on me, switched something on me, and I turned my entire life around. So to me, that's kind of like, even without this story, there's still something in in, in unconditional sharing and in, in no agenda-driven sharing. 
But even no agenda-driven sharing has something very pure in it that could help people at the end. Uh, so, so again, these are just two ideas about like do social engineering versus unconditional sharing, and then um, the idea of what does it mean call chayla v'lashem when you want to do a mitzvah and you go all out and like we did, we beautified our places. The People Magazine had us as the restaurant without a cash register, right? So, so, so kind of like, um, like what? How do we deal with? From a from a Jewish perspective, from a Torah perspective, do we make these lavish Purim meals or even a Passover Seder that we need to play triple rate for a Mashgiach to come? You know what I mean, like that sort of thing, versus a regular everyday meal, which is so much easier to do, and you could make so many more of that. So these are two open-ended ideas that, if you want to talk about Jewishness uh, or Torah perspective, this is something. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and now I'm excited to hear uh, Dr. Haas, do like tell us about the ARC's philosophy before you then respond to Rabbi Rappaport, because I think the ARC takes a very different approach to the, we don't ask anything of you. We don't you go find a flyer on the side of the table. That is not what I know about the ARC. <laughs> um, and so I'm excited and interested to hear your response also, but but do kind of give everyone, most of our listeners don't know all the things I know about sure. Sure. So as, as I mentioned before, you know, the ARC has wraparound services. Um, all of our services are free as well. Um, we take no government funds. We're not eligible for any government funds because we are only serving the Jewish community, though we don't turn anyone away for food. Um, and um, we do have a client choice pantry. Um, we do have the um, the client has the capacity to you know email their orders to the um, their assigned case manager, um, but what we found is that um, no one considers themselves as needing food or hungry among our clients. They think that I can I might need money for this or for that, but I'm not hungry. We thank goodness um, we're not hungry. We're, we're not that bad off. We don't we don't need food. So what we found is that we needed to reframe the, you know, use of the pantry as a cost saving measure because it was too shaming for people to say that they needed food, that they felt that that was one one area where they felt that it was just too un undignified for them. Now, of course, remember, the Chicago community is more insular. It's smaller um, and therefore people will know what other people are doing, what other people might have, where other people go to school, where other people daven. So it's hard to be as discreet. Um, and that was probably our greatest challenge is for getting people to actually use the pantry and see that as an overall line item in their budget. Um, and that's been working a lot, a lot better for people. So we ask people to come at least, you know, nine time, nine months out of out of twelve. Um, our orders are large, and people come for um, and shop for the month. Um, if they don't have a SNAP, a link card, then they can come more often. But most of our clients do also have a link card, um, so that's that's helpful as well. Uh, okay, so 
I'm hopeful that maybe people have kind of responses or, or thoughts about some of the differences between the, the three different organizations approaches that um, that we've just heard about. Um, so maybe um, Dr. Haas, do you want to do you want to maybe maybe start start on that? Yeah, well, one thing is that um, because of COVID, what we have found is that more people are using the pantry, not only because they have greater need, but because we've um, our distribution procedure is more discreet. And we have found that perhaps people are using it because all they're doing now is driving up and the food is put in their trunk where before they had to actually walk into the pantry, stand in a line. And for some people, for many people, it was it was uncomfortable. And because and we're also doing a great many more deliveries um, and we're having volunteers and staff deliver to clients who cannot come out are more homebound. Uh, we also don't want people taking the, the buses. So we're paying for um, Ubers and, and Lyfts and taxis so people um, don't have to schlep with their groceries, um, you know, in, on public transportation. So all of that has resulted in things being a little more discreet and we're finding that people are more comfortable. So even as when things loosen up with COVID, there are, even though it's more um, cumbersome for us, uh, for the pantry staff to be ready with an order when somebody pulls up, we're finding that it's creating a more dignified um, and uh, comfortable way for people to get their, their food. Thank you. Um, Jessica, do you, do you have um, any thoughts about maybe what accounts for some of the differences between Met Council's work and um, what what Dr. Haas described or our board described. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, in, in all of our models, there's, there are connections um, like, um, like the must be a model, Met Council is there and serves everyone. We could not do our work. We could not operate as we do if we did not take um, government support. And so therefore we are open to everyone. Um, we do have some, since the start of COVID have launched a home delivery program for over 2000 Holocaust survivors living in New York City, uh, primarily in Brooklyn, although some in Queens and Manhattan. Um, and that's you know something where we do segregate and say, okay, this is with private funds, we're gonna issue this program and offer this. It's obviously something we would love to be able to offer to the entirety. I mean, we got so many calls, particularly in March and April for requests for home delivery. Luckily here in New York, the city really stepped up with a It had its own challenges of course, but it was at least an option for a lot of people. Um, though currently our program for Holocaust survivors is the only home delivery of grocery, kosher grocery item that is available. Um, but again, we're, we, we really do pride ourselves on being open and available to everyone, but also deal with you know, um, just the realities of kosher food is expensive. How do you how do you give that out appropriately? How do you convey to funders that this these are our values? That yes, we're going to buy kosher chicken, and yes, it may go to people who don't need kosher chicken. And how does that work? And what does that mean? And why is that why is that just the way it's going to be? Um, and thankfully, we've um, we've been able to really make that case effectively. 
Um, but I also, you know, going back to, to access and dignity, um, you know, the digital pantry system we think is a great um, um, innovation, but it is a tremendous, it really shifts, uh, Dr. Haas references, it shifts the burden of the work from the client to the, the organization. The digital pantry program is not only expensive for us to run in the technology, it's expensive for us. We're essentially, we are essentially packing the way Peapod or Fresh Direct is packing. And um, at the beginning of COVID, we had a great number of volunteers who came out to help. Actually, at our Greenpoint location, we had over 2,000 volunteers safely working uh, over the course of a, of a four-month period. It was really incredible. Um, but out of our main warehouse in East Flatbush, Canarsie, it's a lot harder to recruit volunteers. Um, we have a lot more activity there. So to safely use volunteers is a bit challenging. Um, and it makes for an expensive um, model uh, to, to really implement. And again, I think there's a real case to be made for funders about why this is important and valuable. Um, but it's, it's certainly one of the challenges that we confront regularly. I do wanna just put a plug in. We have a new mobile pantry, uh, which is essentially a pantry on wheels um, that is designated to work primarily in Brooklyn right now. Um, and we're very excited about it. And our, our, our thinking really is the idea that not only is running a pantry, as anybody on this call will tell you, like a lot of work and not very glamorous, um, despite the, the great promotional materials uh, we all make, um, but many, particularly in New York, real estate is expensive, keeping a space is expensive, finding school, you know, we've tried to partner with synagogues or schools and everybody is clamoring for space. And the thinking is that having a vehicle that really um, can get to communities and get to people who need it is a great, um, is a great way to flip or deal with the real estate constraints. Um, and so we're very excited about this. And certainly we are looking for partners um, in what is called the Vital Brooklyn Corridor. So basically from Canarsie through Crown Heights um, and are very excited to be able to deploy this uh, to people who need it. So I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but I think it maybe gives a, a, a bigger picture of, of some of the things we think about and how we work. Great, that was so interesting. Thank you. Um, I wrap up I'm wondering whether you can specifically speak to. Um, you told us a story about a non-Jewish person who had come in to Masbia, um, and yet when you uh, look at some of those halakhic texts about tzedakah and who to be giving to, it seems so rather clear that 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 halakha would have us prioritizing uh, giving to Jews in, in this way. Maybe you read them differently, um, and you'll tell me. Um, and so I wonder um, how you think about that, and and what accounts for that difference between your work and and for example what the Ark does. Okay, so so the halakha does have a hierarchy in in the world. I mean, I'm pretty sure the halakha even has a hierarchy of how to give out COVID vaccines. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the, there is. You know, and it could be that a Cohen is supposed to get before a Levy uh, um, COVID vaccine. It could be true. I, I didn't study it from that angle. So Halakha does have a hierarchy world, but I think the only place they don't have a hierarchy is when it comes to food. Food charity is, I, I think the line is, and botkin lemazonot. You don't do any research on how to distribute uh, um, food. Food is... And it, it says clearly that you give for Jews and non-Jews the same. So, so I think for, like for us that we're like a food only, I would say we probably according to Halakha, there's even Kabbalistic sources that 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 uh, um, Jews and non-Jews should be treated the same 
in, in my way of like positioning ourselves as an organization, I say that we happen to be kosher. Meaning to say, because the, the amount of non-Jews we actually feed is 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 just uh, um, makes it feel like we just happen to like the food is. We actually have a hechsher. The OU certifies us, but it's not. Uh, um, it, it's not. You wouldn't know that by looking at our line. I wouldn't say every moment it looks that way, but there's sometimes you could come on our line and 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 you would see that. Um, yes, and and the, there is that sort of struggle, and we actually had that. In the beginning of COVID, I actually had that dilemma. I actually, I came to a, like a real stress point where I actually called up the OU and I said, there's so much um, government um, protein, that's chicken, meat, pork, and whatever, that we cannot get access to because it's not kosher, but it's available. We have so many non-Jews on our line. Can we... And I asked this the OU, can we, I mean, America had, because of the trade wars, there was just so much pork out there that the, the Trump administration had to buy out from red state farmers so they shouldn't be upset on the China uh, counter tariffs. So there was so much uh, of that available in, 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 in March, April, May, that we were looking at what's available for us if only we were not kosher. And it was just... And on the other hand, here we're buying for hundreds of thousands of dollars a month chicken from KJ Poultry, you know, to get, you know, best Hechsher chicken and whatever. And, and so, so, so we were struggling with it. We, we kind of, I asked my board, I asked the OU. It was a real challenge because, yes, there were a lot of people out there. Now, on the other hand, I do try to do a lot of things that are kosher neutral, meaning to say, um, Tilapia fish is an item that is that probably does not have a kosher premium. Eggs is a perfect uh, protein that doesn't have you, you could buy he- eggs without a hechsher. So there, there are things that so we definitely um, try to focus on that. But I must tell you that the hottest item in a soup kitchen or a food pantry is chicken. And next to that comes grape juice. You know what I mean? Like the, the basic Shabbos foods are, are the items that people come and care for. So it, it's hard to, to, to deal, like to not have chicken when that's really what people would care for the most. That's like the biggest prize. So it's definitely, it's definitely a struggle, like Jessica mentioned, where, you know, you're buying expensive chicken, chicken that has a premium for it been made kosher and then giving it out to just anybody online. There is a dilemma there. Um, so the last question that I'm going to ask, and then we'll open it up to questions. Can you just ask a question? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Is, um, Rabbi Rappaport, a question. Your hours. I noticed that you're open all the time. Um, do people come in the middle of the night to, you know, either pick up in a, an order for food or to um, get so, a meal? Yeah, so we're, we're like six, seven weeks into this. Where, so what happened is we were open the regular five to seven hours at each of our locations before COVID. And then we just added an hour before, an hour after, an hour before, until the day and the night just met each other. It became 24 <laughs> hours. So so obviously the last five, six hours were kind of um, iffy. So what we found is the three to five a.m. is iffy. It's only a trickle. The rest 
by now we almost do more at night than by day for many reasons. But one of them is because we we went from having like let's say a hundred people coming for groceries a day to f- families right to to five hundred families every day at each of our sites. So in the beginning, when everything was on lockdown, it was easy to do that because we didn't bother anybody else. We didn't bother our neighbors, the big lines around the corner. But as people started opening up again, it was a burden on the neighborhoods, on the blocks, on wherever we operated. So part of part of being open 24 hours was for us staggering it out. So it's not just that one big line a few hours in the middle of the day that's creating a big chaos. And what we noticed is that it after our na- the neighboring stores, because we're storefronts. So after the neighboring stores close down, it is almost like easier for us to operate because they don't get a, a upset on the commotion it creates. So we actually stack more appointments in the middle of the night than in the middle of the day, just for that reason. Like, And, and what we found also is that some of the people who are very, it's we have in each of our locations between 10 and 15,000 families trying to make an appointment and we can only do about two and a half thousand appointments a week. So kind of having less desired times gives a little bit an open for the person who needs it more. Like if you're going to come at 2 a.m., you probably need it. So it has that balance in it. Um, and I, I must say that yeah, like like I would say from three to five, some people don't show up their appointment. Like it's a little like it, does, it doesn't. So for us, there, there's also like in the evening when it's dark outside, some people like you mentioned before, like the dignity issues, like people like to come when they're less seen and whatever. So th- there's there's a lot of constant juggling and balancing. And, and, and it was a whole transition in nine months to get into those appointments. But the the short answer to your question is that yes, people come 24 hours and most of the night is probably better for them than the day. There might be that 3 to 5 a.m. that maybe is the exception. But for those two hours, we're not just going to close, right? Thank you. Um, Okay. Um, So where I was going to say before is um, one of the things that we kind of dream about is a world in which all the food that's produced gets to all the people that need it. And that um, maybe in an ideal world, your organizations would sort of be unnecessary. Um, and I'm wondering like what you've seen over the years through, through all the different things you all have done. Um, what, what would it take to kind of get to a world in which people are not hungry? Um, so last night we sort of asked that question to Mazon and their answer was like more money for snack. Um, so is that is that an answer that like kind of everyone just agrees with, or are there are diff- you know, different um, different takes on that? And I thought maybe we would. Uh, well, one thing, one thing. I mean, yes, of course, you know, more money for SNAP. I know, you know, during COVID uh, in Illinois, they've been giving the maximum amount of for SNAP for um, any any recipient, and that's been a, a huge help for people. Um, the other thing is the high cost of living a Jewish life. And, you know, whose responsibility is it to try to mitigate that in some way? Or is that even possible? And sort of restructuring even the value system within Judaism, where there is just so much, you know, covet given to those who, who have a lot of money to give. And people that don't and have to actually be in a role of taking just feel so ashamed. 
And that, you know, division is, you know, very, you know, is very unfair and, and very unjust. And it would be nice if, you know, the, the Jewish federations or those with, you know, just huge endowments and a lot of funds um, would, you know, think about, you know, investing in helping people that don't have as much to be able to live a halachic life and, you know, you know, pay for, for day school or at least, you know, we have create some subvention for day school and, you know, be able to um, intervene in terms of how expensive kosher food is. So we, the ARC would love to not exist. We always talk about, wouldn't it be wonderful if, it, if we could do that? If that would happen in our lifetime, it would be such a miracle. And we'd all gladly, you know, walk away. Unfortunately, I don't think that's really true, but I do think that the Jewish community at large could step up and make life easier for people who want to live Jewish lives. Thank you. Um, Jessica, over to you. Yeah, I, I mean, this, in addition to, to, to those comments um, and, and certainly to the, the piece about SNAP, you know, uh, the importance of, of ensuring that people make a livable wage. And, um, you know, there's, <laughs> I'm married to an, a, someone who fancies himself an economist who <laughs> admittedly is against uh, mandatory increases in minimum wage, but nonetheless, the fact that we pay people um, both at nonprofits, primarily, frankly, nonprofits that are serving the very people who are uh, most vulnerable that we don't. Met Council actually under David Greenfield made a real effort to increase and everybody at Met Council makes um, a New York City livable wage as defined by I think the city council passed um, uh, standards around this. Um, it is still a far cry from anything that um, Dr. Haas you're speaking about. I mean, it's still a very you know, it's, it's a de minimis number, frankly, um, but at least making those kind of commitments. And to the extent, um, you know, anybody is comfortable to advocate for that, but also to think about the people you engage with in your lives, whether as employers or, you know, both like the services you pay for are people being paid and compensated fairly. And um, obviously that is a, a burden um, for all of us um, at all at all stages. But I do think, uh, you know, of, of the chain, so to speak. But I do think um, that really thinking about how we compensate people and therefore their ability to pay for the services that, that we ourselves uh, utilize and, and need um, is, is probably the way we see ourselves out of this. Thank you. So I guess it's a social engineering question. So again, I, I'm not into it. I'm not, uh, um, politically speaking, I would say I'm in favor of a universal income. So, um, so if, if you if you, when you talk about food insecurity and, and what would it take? It's basically the haves, the haves and the haves not. So it's it's um, how to. I just feel that the country that could send people to the moon has enough money to give everybody universal income. It's just a priority. If if to use the word fancy again, uh, um, if we could fancy ourselves by sending people to the moon, we could fancy ourselves by saying no one goes to sleep hungry, right? It, it, it's all, it's all, it all depends what your desires are, what you think you can like 
be proud of or what makes you full at night when you're on your couch, right? So, so kind of saying that we're, we're a country where we figured out no one is, is going to go to sleep without food. If that makes you as proud of sending a person to the moon, you'll find the money for it, right? So it, it really, it's, it's, it's a priorities issue. Um, and we just got to be more open to share. I think a lot of like the political discourse and dialogue and everything is all about always like, okay, so again, even if you if we go back to like the checks that were all 600 or 2000, but it's always to give everybody because Chaz Shalom, if you're going to say that you give only for those who don't have, then, you know, it, it, that's not, not, not palatable in, in the current climate. And I, I just think just, more sharing, uh, more, that's where I come down at it. Uh, um, I, and again, obviously, I believe in trickle-up economics. Give more people at the bottom and the whole economy will turn up. So maybe me and Jessica's husband should have a talk. I love Keep that. Me. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I said I love trickle-up economics. Fantastic. Um, so I want to open it up for questions, including uh, feel free to follow in Dr. Haas's footsteps and ask questions of each other as well. But also we have some people with us live um, who um, should feel free either to pipe in with questions or to put them in the chat and we'll make sure uh, we'll make sure they get read also. I have a couple of things. I was, I was trying to look up some stuff as you guys were talking, but I went to some context and please correct me if I'm wrong with some of these things. But when you said you should, when did soup kitchens start, at least in this country, and I saw that Al Capone in Chicago in the 1930s started a soup kitchen, which I couldn't believe that. I checked again. So maybe from Chicago, you can elaborate, but he did it during the depression and um, it kept going. Um, so that was curious to, to see that. I was also wondering in, in the world, and I saw that there was a soup kitchen in London back in 1854 to Jews that were escaping pogroms and had nothing to, to go to. And so I guess they've been around probably longer than that. Um, and then just some other things. I happen to live in Miami, and there's a lot of food distributions. And Miami is a car culture here. And I'm not making any kind of judgments, but because you were saying some people walk up, you drive by these lines are so long um, and you see Mercedes and BMWs and not many older cars. So it's like, I, I know you don't check somebody's in line, I'm guessing they're reading it, but to me, it's incredible that how long these lines are with not walking up. People are just driving in, the trunks are open and they're just getting this food, which seems incredible to me. Um, also, I can't tell you how many times I go to a grocery store. I'm seeing them just throwing out all this fruit that looks a little bit blemished or bread or things like that. And I'm just wondering if there's any sort of collaboration. Because it's just, you see all the fruit in the dumpster. And that could go to someplace better than that. It would, it just, it would seem to me. And then you could see Seinfeld a million different times. But there was a scene, the episode with a sponge and they're in a restaurant. And... I think George's date worked in the soup kitchen. And then Jerry Seinfeld says, they serve more than soup? Don't they get the... And it's, but hearing it, and who knew? But hearing you saying that all the different things that you do, um, but I was fascinated in, in doing some research that soup is a staple. And Jerry's comment was, you mean they eat soup so early in the morning and don't they get tired of wanting something else? So it's nice to hear that you're doing other things with that. So I just wanted to just interject, you know, that and I'll just... 
a bunch of different questions all put together, but right before it sounds like you have what to respond. Yeah, I have like three of the comments. Uh, um, so with the nice cars, I'll just say, I have previous donors on our lines. I mean, I, there are people who probably have their names on buildings in Israel who came to our lines now. Like maybe they, they were sponsors in the past, but think of a person that kind of goes from deal to deal. Um, the last deal they had was a year or two ago. They can't get any unemployment or they maxed out their unemployment like two years ago because the guy is like um, a 65 year old, can't find a, a new job, was laid off or whatever like the situations. They, they own their own house, eligible for very little of the government programs or none and find themselves with COVID and no food to eat and trying to save their house if there is still a mortgage or whatever, so any little bit of food, they end up coming with their fancy car, with their, and they still have my cell phone from when they came last time when they married off and came with the Kala a night before the wedding and volunteered the whole night and sponsored the whole day. And now they're coming and, and I literally had a, a, a mother say, I'm on your line. I can't, I can't take it. Can you please help me? Like she was like, just embarrassed, like waiting on the line. I said, just go home. And I just sent someone over with the food. I, just, I, I felt so bad. So, so that's one thing with, when, when you see some of these fancy cars, these people might've had a good life just a few months ago and, and they still have their fancy car. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, um, about food rescue, uh, we can make a whole shear on food rescue. I, I, I'm very like, broken about it. That said, that since in the last six weeks, we got between eight and nine tractor trailer loads from Manischewitz Kedem or food rescue or things that are kind of like um, short, like right at the end of the day, like probably they were December 31st and we were trying to make use of it. But, but let's think of a head of lettuce. A head of lettuce is a food that when you see it on the ground, the, the farmer, when it chops off the head from the floor, probably 50% stays on the ground. When they put it into the box, they take off a few pieces and they put it into the box. You, the person unpacking it um, on the, in, in, the, in the fruit store takes a few pieces off and puts it on the shelf. You come home, you take a few pieces off and start washing it. So a lot of food by design is way more about distribution than the actual food essence. Having available stomachs and having uh, ready-to-eat food and getting that puzzle um, and getting the maze correctly and the flow of it correctly is, is so much more. So a lot of food by design God created it with waste. There is, by design, waste in it. The fact that the worst food is the shelf-stable food for yourself, right? The, the, the food that goes bad is the healthiest for you. So, the, we and, and there's another, uh, um, like, um, I'm going to give too much of my thoughts away here, but the rich will always get the first cut and then will take the junk, the leftovers, and give it to the poor. Why? If we all, if we're going to care about throwing away food, we need to change the nature of waste. 
but not saying, oh, we're going to rescue all the fancy restaurants leftovers and give it to the poor the next day. I, I just see something very wrong about it. I also don't see it economically viable. We, we sometimes see food rescues and there are different organizations, pop-up organizations that happen that they end up spending more on gasoline to save something that's not worth the gasoline that it's spending. And besides what it does for the environment, it just, just doesn't add up for the economics of it. Some food belongs in the garbage by default. But, 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 by, so, and, and, and saying that every piece of garbage, oh, we could have given it to a poor, it's just a bad idea. Why give the poor garbage? You care for the poor? I mean, you, you made a bar mitzvah and you have leftovers. Why didn't you think of the poor before the bar mitzvah and give an extra check to the poor and don't order so much? So, so the, the idea is, if I have leftover mitzvah, better than the garbage is the poor. No, the poor are not. You're better than the garbage. So, 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 the, so the, um, I think these are the three. Um, oh, by the way, yeah, you also mentioned the soup. Something about Seinfeld. Sorry, I don't watch Seinfeld, but I did end up watching a Saturday night clip when we opened um, um, our Queens facility. Um, there was actually a Saturday night um, live joke on this kosher place that is opening more soup kitchens and some sort of face the guy made with the soup. I still don't understand the joke, but something, uh, <laughs> we, we, something about like soup kitchen soup and he had like a piece of like whatever, uh, but uh, yeah, so something with the soup and the soup kitchen. Yeah. And just so you know, you could add to your list of, we actually opened the, Wikipedia entry for soup kitchen about 10 years ago. Um, so you could add to the uh, uh, list of Jews who opened whatever. There was no entry on Wikipedia until 10 years when we decided hey, what is that? Uh, now you'll see it's a nicely edited down fancy piece over there, but we were the ones that. That's a great fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any other questions. I'm sure some of our other panelists also have thoughts on things that both Steve said, but then also that our report uh, responded. <laughs> that response was full of interesting and probably um, mildly controversial nuggets. Um, but I'm wondering if other people have <laughs> if other people have um, some questions to add into the hopper before we keep going. There was um, Marie. I saw had actually a question for our report though. Um, she asked about how Masbia was able to scale up to meet needs, but maybe we'll um, open that up to everyone and say, like, how was everyone able to scale up to meet needs? Meaning, all of you spoke about scale, all of you spoke about the needs rising, but not actually about where the money came from to do that, or um, or how that that actually worked. So maybe let's open that question up more broadly, and maybe we'll kick it over to Jessica. Sure. Um, I mean, I could have also commented on Steve's uh, points, but but listening to uh, Rabbi Rappaport is is a joy. So um, I'm glad he he took that. Um, uh, Met Council, I mean, we in 2019 calendar year distributed five million pounds of food um, through New York City, and in this last calendar year, we distributed more than three times that much food. Um, so well over 15 million pounds. We're actually still doing the final calculations. Unfortunately, we've had some people out with COVID uh, slowing us down on that. Um, but we are, uh, we've, we, we've absolutely exceeded 15 million pounds. So um, really very, very significant. Uh, like Maspia, we 
had to dramatically scale our hours. We are not working through the night, but we do open our warehouse now at 6 a.m., um, six days a week, and really um, are just, just everyone on our team has um, so, so significantly stepped up um, to help support this. And it's been, uh, I'm sure you can all imagine the uncertainty, the concerns, the virus, um, concerns for our friends and family, et cetera. But everyone has really been amazing um, to allow us to do this. And then, of course, there's the funds. Um, New York City City Council uh, back in April announced a $25 million infusion to the emergency food network. Um, much of it was designed to go directly two programs on the ground, but my council was one of the six organizations that was selected to help administer and coordinate that effort. Um, and so we were a very significant recipient of those funds. Um, again, many of it, much of it was passed through to other organizations, but it also allowed us to be able to scale and, and do what was needed. And, and one of the things, it's, it's probably a bit trite, but that I, I really feel very proud of is over these last, particularly the last 10 months, we had just an inordinate amount of requests for help, both from individuals, because we do operate pantries ourselves, um, as well as um, are known in the community for all of the other social service work we do. But um, but everywhere from mosques to churches, um, to other Jewish organizations, synagogues, et cetera. And really that in the year 2020, we did not have to say no to a single request. Um, and so that was really, really incredible. Um, obviously, we would love to have been able to do even more and to, to be able to be even more generous. Um, but it really meant that we could show up for people. Um, and if we're showing up for other um, organizations, then they're showing up for the community and they're the ones, you know, on the front line. So it's really, um, really been incredible. We are very concerned about what, what happens now. A lot of that funding did end with the calendar year. Um, I'm sure we're all feeling COVID fatigue in our in our lives. Um, donors have also um, been experiencing COVID fatigue. And, um, and so we're very concerned about what this means come basically now. Um, but it is, um, uh, it's been, it's been really a, a great a, a great blessing and pleasure to be a part of this work these last few months, last, last several years, but over these last difficult months. Thank you. I wanted to um, share that question also with Dr. Haas, because you mentioned that the ARC doesn't take money from the government. So when Met Council needed to, uh, needed to scale up their operations, that's where a lot of their funds came from. Um, so how did the ARC uh, manage and where, where did you, where did your capabilities come from? Yeah, well, yeah, the, the JUF really stepped up. Um, our agency was the only... JUF is the Chicago Federation. Oh, yeah, right, <laughs> JUF, Jewish United Fund, and it's the Chicago Area uh, Jewish Federation. Thank you. Um, they were very, very generous with us. Um, we're the um, only food pantry among their agencies, so they knew that that was something that the community really needed. So they were very, very generous with financial assistance as well. Um, also, the community really donated a great deal of money. We found this during the recession of 2008 and 2009 as well, that donors who you know may have usually given to the you know ballet or the zoo, you know, couldn't give as much, but what they chose to give were essential services. And that was really beneficial. So that really helped us tremendously. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask of the other um, two uh, other you know agencies is um, 
where whether you get um, wholesale food, whether you're able to do that and how you were able to develop relationships with um, purveyors to give you wholesale prices. And was it totally based on you just buying so much that they were willing to do that? Um, and, um, you know, how do you how do you maintain those relationships or, you know, identify the resources? Um, why don't we start with our wrap report, given that um, you spoke about uh, getting whole trucks from Manischewitz. Yeah, so, so I want to go, uh, go back to the original question and I'll come back to this. Uh, um, the, the original question is how we scaled up. So I, I came up with a concept uh, a little while ago. I didn't make it up by the, uh, after this question. You know, when you go to the store and there is that little pony and you, you you put in a quarter and it sings old McDonald, you could a kid up and, and, and it kind of shakes for two minutes. And that sort of quarter fed the kitty ride. Masbia is very much a grassroots charity that is like quarter fed by its donors to do what it does. So what you see the, the guy that I'm the pony, so to speak, the people put in the, the quarters, they really make it happen. I would say that in the first days, in the beginning of COVID, those who follow the, the Hebrew calendar, it was right after Purim through Pesach, right? So we we saw an enormous increase of donations coming in, just grassroots donations, plain people going on our website. We were fortunate enough that the, uh, um, the New York Times featured us already in March as, as kind of as part of the New York City's response. I got I got really scared if that's the best they got is kind of like, uh, uh, <laughs> but 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 kind of uh, um, so we, we were able to get a lot of private donors right at the beginning. That's what we needed most. And then as months got in, more of the government additional sources started hit, coming to us. That was more to May and June helped us kind of keep on what we have done. But the initial spark, the initial mobilization and going so much more um, was very much like donor driven. Like we saw that there's an appetite by our donors and we we kind of like scaled up. Obviously, like Jessica said, there's like the staff has to come along with you. You can't just, uh, and at great risk, um, I would say we, we actually announced that we're going to do all our operations outdoors all the time. Like we were um, a day before New York City even announced that there's no more in-house restaurants. So a lot of it has to do because I followed a lot of the Israeli news. So I saw what was happening there. So I was able to like um, adapt a little ahead. So, so we, we are operating on the sidewalk in front of our facilities since, since then. We never went in back. Um, I think most of our staff uh, um, never caught COVID. We, we, we operated and saw so many people and, and, and we were just operating at the outdoors and obviously with other safety measures, but uh, that's that. Now to the issue um, um, the doctor asked uh, of, of um, um, getting prices, it, it's, it's really an art. So, so it's an art also again of supply and demand. So what happens when Menashevitz calls you that they have a trailer load of matzah that is expiring in four days, right? So obviously, if you can give it out to people before expiration date is the most dignified way, 
and you tell them, ah, um, I'm not going to take it. I, I can't take it till 10 days. They say, we need it out of the warehouse today. You need to be able to have that capacity. That uh, um, So we, like I said before, we actually got in kind, when you say food rescue, things that we did not pay for in the last six weeks, something like eight tractor trailers worth of food. Um, um, from Menashevitz Keiko alone, but but even on, on the uh, even on what we buy from them, what we pay and we buy from other places, it is always a challenge, and it is always like you have to. It, to me, it's a game of you know what are we getting from government? What are we? Get? It's it's like a puzzle. It's like a um, and and I juggle things uh, um, and and. It's a constant art and, and kind of um, who are the vendors who are going to give you the best uh, price if it's COD versus who are the best vendors who are going to give you 90 days to pay, you know, depending on what your cash or hand flow is. There's just so many variables and, and that's the trick. But at, at the end of the day, I think what you touched on it is is it's it's just the volume that – and we also kind of stick to very – there's probably those 50 to 70 items that we care for. It's not like we want to fill a, a gazillion of different types of food. You know, it's, it's it's the first 50 food pantry items, you know, from from rice, pasta, flour, oil, you know, basic, you know, protein, starch, and vegetables that that are the very basic that we care for. And we slowly learn who are, who are the people who have those commodities at the best levels, at the best prices. Um, so this conversation could probably keep going for a very long time because the work you all do is extremely interesting and different from each other. And we have so much to learn from you. Um, unfortunately, we are over time um, and uh, we should probably call it a night. But I did want to thank our panelists so very much for joining us. Um, I want to thank everyone who came and who's watching on Facebook and who's watching here. Um, it's been a really tough Day for America and to spend an hour talking about Chassad and about people who do amazing work and the donors who support that. Um, and we talked about federations, which represent entire massive Jewish communities worth of giving, um, doing really, really good stuff with that communal funds. Um, and, and of course, we have the challenge from Dr. Haas that even, you know, there's so much more that can be done. Um, but, but to take a moment to thank you, the three of you and your organizations, your agencies for the incredible work that you do on behalf of the Jewish people and facing the whole world. Um, and really, we're so honored to have you joining us here at Drisha as part of our Winters Mon. Um, and we're just so, as Jews, we're so, we're so grateful um, that you're doing the work that you're doing. So thank you all so much.